Such, such, such a beautiful moment. And, um, and after the evening event tonight, I have, uh, at the request of a number of people, brought a IMAX uh, version of Future Dreaming. And so anybody who wants to stay up past their bedtime tonight, we're going to have a, we're going to, we're going to have a little bit of a, a late night uh, drive-in. So you can make out, you can bring popcorn, do whatever you need to do. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll be doing that after Dr. Carey's wrapped up this evening, and, and we'll spend a little bit of time with a, with a conversation that we miss, and that conversation is we've heard all kinds of stuff about what's wrong, but you know we haven't had a lot of conversations about what right would look like, and we're going we're gonna to have a little conversation about what right might look like. So that's going to be tonight. Anybody who wants to stay up past their bedtime, I'll hang out with you. We'll keep it going, and, um, and we'll see what the future is. Now, I made a commitment when I was in graduate school, and that commitment was never give the same lecture twice, because nothing pissed me off like being a graduate student during the advent of overhead projectors. <laughs> because what overhead projectors really meant was professors got lazy. And they got lazy because they just threw the slides up and you were supposed to sit there and take notes. And, and you could tell when they were dialing it in. <laughs> you, you could tell. And you were sitting there going, nah, this isn't real. You don't believe it. And the reason I'm telling you that story is twofold. Number one is I made a vow in my master's thesis uh, statistics course with Professor Jim Trelor at Ball State University. I made a vow that I would never give the same lecture twice. I have never broken that vow in now 30 plus odd years. So the bummer is if you're wanting me to talk about something you thought I was going to talk about, you're disappointed. You're welcome. But I thought I'd throw a bigger curveball at you because I think every conversation about COVID and every conversation about SARS coronavirus is the wrong conversation for humanity to be having. And I think we have been seduced into a distraction of epic proportions while a greater evil is being done. So I am not going to fall for it. If you thought this was going to be the find the Fauci moment, I got a little teaser in there. You'll get a little Fauci, but that's not what this is about. This is about the illusion of knowledge. And I have at the bottom of this slide one of my favorite quotes from Hosea 4, 6. People are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. So, some of, a few of you have actually been to Kim and my workshops. Our next one is in June in Charlottesville. But if you haven't, you know that one of the experiences I had in my life was to be invited into the very heart of the organization that is running this current destruction. And in 1998, if you want to read about it, it's in my novel, Coup de 12. But if you want to go back and look at it, I was actually invited to take a very senior role in destroying this planet. And like everything else, 
the deal was a good deal. It was a good deal. And it wouldn't have me standing in Yuba City. I, I, would, I would not be standing here in that deal. But more importantly, I wouldn't have been here anyhow. So at what price your soul? So let's have a little bit of fun. This is the most important slide you will ever not see anywhere. And oddly enough, you don't know where the punchline is, but I'm going to tell you it's in the middle of the slide, and you actually don't know what the middle of the slide is, but that's okay. This particular campaign began in 1804. This one. Edward Jenner, who was the person who gave us the opportunity to call a thing a vaccine, which, by the way, gets its derivation from cattle. Now think very carefully about what I just said. Cattle. And you've heard things like heard this and heard that and all kinds of other language that has to do with cattle. And it had to do with the emergence of an economy that was fledgling as a result of a conflict that had not yet been resolved. Because actually, if we go back a couple years before this, we find out that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were actively engaged in how to manage things like the plague. Because one of the great concerns during the revolutionary conflict that began not in 1776, that wrapped up on July 4th and we shot off fireworks, no that actually kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going until the War of 1812, the Treaty of Ghent, all the things that you have not read because you were never taught about reading any of these things, which are the agreements that we made to be permanently indentured to the United Kingdom. Did you hear that? Land of the free, home of the brave is a marketing slogan, never been the truth. Never been the truth. It's a marketing slogan. It is not the truth. And if you don't believe me, read the Treaty of Ghent. Tell me what fur trapping has to do with land of the free, home of the brave. Jenner decided that there was actually an opportunity and a risk to play around with the weaponization of nature. And 1803, he decided to coin what became a conversation that lasted for 80 years, which was how could we use the plague constructively? How could we use the plague constructively? Because it turns out Plagues have been around every now and then. All kinds of crazy things have been around every now and then. And, and in 1883, Francis Galton came up with the answer to the question. And the answer to the question was these beautiful things called bacterium, viruses, plague, could be very 
interestingly conscribed into a term that he decided to publish in 1883 as eugenics. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could actually harness nature to actually be weaponized against humanity? 1883. If we were to examine the business plan which gave rise to what we're experiencing now. And by the way, that business plan included an industry that mysteriously for the last 15 months, none of us have heard anybody talking about except a bald-headed, bow-tie-wearing <laughs> idiot from Virginia you didn't hear about life insurance. Ooh, now we're gonna get real. Because it turns out that from 1883 to 1893, the largest growth contributor to the GDP of this country was the trade in the fear of death. The life insurance industry represented more than the combined contribution to the economy of the coal, steel, and manufacturing industries combined in the 10 years from 1883 to 1893. And the reason why none of you are talking about this is because if you want to know who runs the world, you've got it all wrong ever since you were fooled into believing that the Federal Reserve was a central bank money grab by bankers and by the cabal in 1913, because it turns out, conveniently, insurance companies, not banks, put up banks to be the fall guy. In 1904, all you have to do is look at who was on the dais when the president was sworn into office the following year, 1905. And you see quite mysteriously, standing next to the President of the United States were the executives of New York Life, of Aetna, and of the major life insurance companies of America. And for the last 145 years, they have done a wonderful job of making sure you never knew they're behind it all. And by all, I mean all. And I don't mean some of all. I mean all of all. The industry that was born of the Protestant ethic that said, we don't want to pay our ministers enough in life so that we will pay them an insurance for the, quote, Widows and Orphans Fund. And by the way, they use that term because it came right out of the book of Acts. So why not use a term that's so biblical nobody will argue with it? What was that? That was cheap-ass congregations who wanted to not pay their ministers, knew their ministers would run up debt in life, and wanted to make sure that banks got paid off all their debts when they died. 
By the way, that's how life insurance got started. So those of you who don't know that, I just spoiled it for you. It was actually an evangelical Christian cheap-ass strategy of not paying ministers enough in life. Now, if we sold it that way, few of us would buy it. But I told you this is a branding campaign. And it turns out that what makes life insurance work is a thing called term life policies. And what makes that work is that you pay for a while. Usually, you buy your first policy when you get your first house, when you have kids, when you get married, when you get responsible. You buy your first policy, and what you do is every year you pay into your life insurance premiums, and, and you do that for a long time, and after a while, you kind of go, kind of feel like I'm paying a lot in, and I'm not sure what I'm getting for the return, and And it turns out that for most of us, after 17 and a half to 18 and a half years, we stop paying. That's a great business, isn't it? To tax people for 18 years, to offer them nothing, and in return for the favor, keep all their money, plus all the money you made on all their money, and offer them no benefit. (laughs) Pretty good racket. Best part about it, is they actually figured out that it was important to support the eugenics movement. You heard what I said, people. Turns out that the thing that throws a curveball into life insurance policies is people that die when you don't want them to die. That's a curveball. That means you have to pay out. So, surprisingly, In 1904 to 1910, Andrew Carnegie, who was very much affiliated with several of the boards of the life insurance companies, decided that we needed to institutionalize medicine, medicine, institutionalize health research, and pay for it for life insurance companies. Because controlling your death was big business. And people who didn't match the actuarial models were bad for business. Lo and behold, what did we start doing? I love when people tell me that eugenics was a Hitler thing. (laughs) Nice try, and thank you once again to the life insurance companies for marketing that piece of bullshit. (laughs) But this particular pursuit of this particular situation was born in 1910. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. How many of you have heard people talking on podcasts and YouTube about Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory? That's right, the giant resounding nobody. Ah! Isn't it funny how we've been sucker punched into believing that the bad guy is a Rothschild or the bad guy is, you know, part of this nefarious, deep underlord, dark underworld, you know, pentagram laden candle ceremony seance bullshit story? Isn't it great to have a cover story when nobody actually then asks the right question, which is hold on a minute. If somebody's marketing a story to me, 
I wonder if that marketing of a story is so I don't ask any more questions. And by the way, everybody who thinks that the world is run by the Rothschilds has their head up their ass. And I'm dead serious. The world is actually run by life insurance executives. Bad news. And it turns out that we're going to get to why that's so damn important. But the word defective human, defective human, entered our vocabulary in 1914. What's a defective human? And by the way, we've heard about defective genes and we've heard about defective anything. What's a defective human? Anybody? Anybody? No, what is a defective human? Let's, let's ask the question. We go back to Dr. Ely's talk, right? You were created in the image and likeness of... Thank you. And so a defective human would be... Our perspective, maybe. Our perspective, maybe. But there ain't no such thing as a defective human. There are defects that humans put into humanity, but there's no such thing as a defective human. But in 1914, a guy by the name of Harry Laughlin published a study which actually set in motion what became one of the most horrific, and one day this story is going to be told like we tell stories of the carnage of the most gross inhumanities that humans have ever perpetrated on each other. Far more egregious than warfare, far more egregious than Vikings raping and pillaging. What happened in 1914 is an unforgivable, mortal sin. We decided that we are the arbiters of who should live and who should die. By the way, for those of you not scholars in history, this is before the First World War. Remember this. It turns out that the First World War was good business for life insurers. You know what happened when we actually sent young men and women, mostly men, few women, but when we sent young men over to their deaths in Europe? Life insurers pocketed a shitload of money. Because it turns out that very few people knew how to file claims. The Department of Defense didn't have a mechanism to actually process those things. And it turns out that, in fact, the First World War, if you look at it from an economic perspective, the biggest winner of the First World War were life insurance companies. If a business works well, what do you do? You know, the war to end all wars? Not so fast. Because the ending of the wars thing feels like it would mean that we wouldn't get to go to the well again. So how about we actually figure out ways to sell eugenics to a point where, and I love this one, hereditary is the big problem. The headline from 1929. Heredity is the big problem. That was mainstream media. 
Turns out that if we didn't select the right genes to go into the right people, back then it wasn't called genes yet, but if we didn't select the right breeding, and by the way, if you look closely at this one, I love to read this. It turns out that there are those who would actually say that we should at least be as sophisticated as what dairymen do to cattle. That's a headline in 1929. We should be as good with humans as dairymen are to cattle. <clears throat> by the way, the media being paid for here by life insurance companies. 1932, Cold Spring Harbor. Booker T. Washington and a couple other people get together. And there's this idea that comes along. There's this idea that says that we think that this little bacterium that we figured out might have a really important role to take what used to be traditional and herbal and natural medicines. I think, I think this little bacterium, this little piece of nature could be co-opted. We could grow it in incubators and we could actually turn it into something that would be a very important way to take industry into medicine because it turns out that up until then, medicine was a very distributed phenomenon. We had all kinds of things going on, little apothecaries and little drug stores and little people that had their bowls and their crushers and all of the cool little things that they had. And, and it turns out that sucks because what we can't do is we can't get mass production of a thing. And we want mass production of a thing. And so we came up with this little thing called penicillin, but we needed to figure out how to get this little thing called penicillin into something that would be generally known about, but the public would have no willingness to speak about. Now, it turns out at that point in time, there was tons of different things that we could have used penicillin for. We could have used it for lung disorders and all sorts of other things, but it turns out that it was a good idea to pick on STDs. You know why? Because nobody wanted to talk about them. And if nobody wants to talk about something, then nobody will talk about it. So what we'll do is we'll pick this thing called syphilis. What we'll do is we will start infecting a population with syphilis so that we can actually expand the number of illnesses that we have to justify a clinical trial, an emergency use authorization of penicillin. I told you last night, old playbook, new script, but not really even a new script. This is like a bad sitcom. This is like Days of Our Lives. <laughs> this is like General Hospital. You know what's going to happen. A hot nurse is going to have the affair with the married doctor, and she's going to get pregnant. And you know how it's going to end. You still watch it. but you. St 1932, we start infecting people with syphilis so that we can maybe, or maybe not, give them penicillin or not, because what we want to do is understand how pathogens kill populations. Did you hear what I just said? And, and, and I wonder if, if you heard in the film last night with Melinda Gates, we really need to make sure that we start with the blacks and the, and the Native Americans, right? You know what we did? We started with the blacks. 
and the Native Americans. And not only did we actually infect them with syphilis so that we could get our penicillin clinical trials going, but we also decided that at the same year, 1932, we would actually start institutionalizing across the country forced sterilization of men and women so that the breed that is not acceptable, and I said that by virtue of the words that were used, the breed of humanity that's not acceptable would be expunged from the human experience. We actually literally legalized in every state in this country the castration of men and the sterilization of women so that people we didn't want would breed. And I tell people this all the time, and they sit there going, no, 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 that's a Third Reich thing. No, it wasn't. Hitler actually conscribed our science so that in 1939 he could publish Euthanasia of the Undesirable. Euthanasia. We were in the process at that time of castrating people and sterilizing people, and it turns out Hitler just decided, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you just go ahead and kill him? Don't think for a moment that 1939 Third Reich Germany was the one that figured that one out, because we were doing it in the 20s. Why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about it? Huh? No, we don't talk about it, because we actually have, I think, collectively, survivor's guilt. I think we don't talk about it because we are, in fact, the progeny of this experiment. Now, you didn't know that, just like you didn't know life insurance, just like you didn't know who was on the dais in 1905 at the presidential election, just like you didn't know that that election was purchased, kind of like some other elections. That's a really new problem, isn't it? 1904. Hitler, 1939, comes up with this euthanasia thing so that he can come up with a superior race. And rather than disagreeing with him, the United States starts collaborating with the Third Reich on euthanasia and sterilization to get rid of, quote, imbeciles, undesirables, the infirm, the weak. People, we're getting to our parents' generation now, aren't we? This is getting uncomfortably close. Right? If your parents are in their 80s, if you're in your 80s, if you know anybody who's 80, they were alive when these decisions and these conversations were commonplace. They were on the front page of newspapers. They were on the front page of scientific journals. They were on the front page. And it was normal for all of us in the, quote, greatest generation on earth to find it perfectly acceptable to build asylums, to kill people, to castrate people, and to sterilize people. And that was perfectly acceptable. Have you ever heard the phrase, the sins of the fathers are sometimes visited on? Anybody want to go with me on this little journey here for a minute? And it turns out that in 1946, how many of you know what was going on somewhere else in the world in 1946? Anybody, 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 anybody? Another world war, right? In 1946, a beautiful, generous, compassionate human soul, John D. Rockefeller, <laughs> decided that we needed to fund the Center for Disease Control. Now, does anybody know what the Center for Disease Control actually was set up to be? Yeah. 
Anybody? No, that's the story they want you to tell. It was actually set up to investigate the what makes malaria kill some people and make some people survive. That's what it was set up to do. Because it was, in fact, before the CDC, it was actually the Center for Malaria Control, which was allegedly what we set in motion with the Panama Canal, and then we set in motion for the southern states, because we were very worried about the fact that we were not getting enough work out of the indentured and enslaved population because malaria seemed to be killing, are you ready for this? African Americans, slaves. That's bad for business, isn't it? Did we actually care about malaria because we actually loved the people who were exposed to malaria? Do you think that John D. Rockefeller woke up on one of his hunting safaris and go, oh, how I long for the day when these poor African savages can shoot big game with me healthily. Do you think that was part of his kind of long-term plan? No. His long-term plan was, how do I actually selectively get to a place where enough of them are around to carry the big game out of the forest or savanna, but not enough of them to be in the way of the mining and the oil and the everything else I want really from their land. So it turns out that managing their death would be a pretty good idea. So understanding malaria was not about public health. It was about economics. 1946, CDC is formed, allegedly, for malaria control, but the syphilis thing snuck in under the radar because we needed some place to put the syphilis project, and so we did. And Cold Spring Harbor and Atlanta, Georgia, became a collaborating location to make sure we figured out how to destroy the lives of African Americans with a controlled release of a pathogen during a period of time that we had, quote, civil rights interests. Isn't it interesting that we're marching for civil rights at the same time we're murdering people? Isn't that a really cool paradox where our official cover story is, ah, we're all about equal access. Let's ever get everybody to the drinking fountain. Let's just have fewer people getting to the drinking fountain. To the point where maybe we could get all the way to nobody to the drinking fountain and we could actually get to the place where we wanted in the first place. We just happened to have the inconvenience if they all died of syphilis. Oh, I'm sorry. Now here's, in my view, in the long arc of the insurance company story, the original sin. And I am now going to offend almost everybody in the room with what I'm going to say about science. How many of you have ever seen a tapestry? A tapestry. Most of you. So you know that it's made up of strings tied in knots on warp threads, right? Well, it turns out that you do not have DNA. You have chromosomes. Nature made chromosomes. If I were to walk into a cathedral in Europe and I would say, before you look at the tapestry, let me untie all the threads and then let me put them in a pile on the floor and then I'd like you to critique the image of the tapestry, you would think me mad. You would think me mad because I would be in fact mad. You would not see the near-naked vixen by the pond. You would not see the heart with an arrow thrust through its bleeding chest. You wouldn't see any of those images, and you wouldn't see them because it would be a pile of string on the ground. It turns out that a nasty photograph 
And it wasn't really a photograph. It was an x-ray photograph, plate 51, taken in 1952. Okay? I saw. And I said it. There you said it. And I'm telling you why I said it. Because DNA is not a product of nature. It is a model of human manipulation. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. DNA is not a product of nature. It is a characteristic. It's a model of human manipulation. That first image, 1952, Raymond Gosling and Rosalind Franklin, the actual people who first characterized the double helix called deoxyribonucleic acid, they were the first ones to discover that there was an interesting orientation of the molecule, deoxyribonucleic acid, and it was then a year later that Watson and Crick were celebrated for actually coming up with the invention of DNA. But it turns out they didn't invent anything. They actually built a model. But the model was analogous to untying the tapestry of life in the form of chromosomes and then putting the untied strings on the floor and saying, describe humanity. Funded by foundations supported by life insurance companies. Why do you think the Nobel Prize was awarded to the people who didn't even discover the thing? They didn't. Watson and Crick had nothing to do, seriously, nothing to do with discovering anything. They happened to be eugenicists who would support a cover story that would tell science, don't look anywhere else, only look to the double helix. I'm going to go out on a limb here for you. Chromosomes, being paramagnetic, wound, helical coils of conductive material are quite possibly antenna. They're quite possibly not chemistry at all. And it turns out I've proven that in the lab. If you wonder why the magnet experiment that you're going to hear about from Dr. Carey is so damn interesting, it's not because of DNA. It's not because of RNA. It's because they are putting an antenna into your body to screw up the transmissions of all of the wisdom of the cosmos so that you are detached from being human. And if you knew what it really was, it is a wound helical antenna, and it is an antenna that was made so that we stayed in touch with our creation and our creator. That's what it was. And in 1953, we defiled it. And we have spent billions of dollars describing life through untied strings of a tapestry and then mysteriously come to the conclusion that 95% of DNA is just junk DNA. Really? If you're a statistician in the room and you've ever actually said that, you should hang your head in shame in perpetuity. You should get sackcloth and ashes. You should have a scarlet dunce cap sewed onto your shirt or your hat or whatever because it turns out that the reason why we don't understand life is because we untied the majesty of the tapestry of life and then tried to describe life through the pile of strings that we put on the floor. There is no such thing as a DNA-RNA relationship. That's a model. It's a model. 
And by the way, I'm not criticizing people who use models to describe things. That's not the point. I'm talking about life. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about science. Have at it till the cows come home. Talk about DNA. Talk about RNA. Talk about transfection and translation and, and polymerase chains and all kinds of other things. Do all of your magic you want and don't ever tell me that you've described a single phenomenon of life. Because you have untied the very fabric of the nature of reality and then you're trying to play God with it. We, the people, have been had. We are not a selective breeding experiment for a Petri dish. And I am sick and tired of having this conversation be about whether there's a virus or not a virus, if there's RNA or not RNA. People, if we can't define life, we will never understand health. Did you hear what I just said? If we do not understand life, we can never define health. Because we have decided that we are now this bizarre strand of untied string on the floor, and we're trying to make sense out of it. This isn't an accident. This was a design. And it was a design to set in motion the maturity of one of the most horrific experiences that is about to befall us. And it, by the way, has almost nothing to do with COVID or SARS or anything else. Because it turns out that in 1945, 1946, 1947, we started developing all of these interesting financial models that started saying, oh, hold on a minute, what we're going to do is we're going to actually get the government to take on the role of mitigating what life duration is, which is what we did with the New Deal and with all kinds of other programs. So we build our financial systems to actually tie into the life insurance racket that's, by the way, why we have a 30-year mortgage. You know why you have a 30-year mortgage? A time series that correlates with nothing in nature, nothing at all, nothing in nature. Do you know why we have a 30-year mortgage? We have a 30-year mortgage because that was the average life expectancy of a blue-collar worker in 1904. And it turns out that if you match the mortgage to the life of a person, guess what you get to do? You get to foreclose on their house when they've paid it almost all the way off. People, I'm trying to wake the real wake up. This isn't about masks and it's not about injections. And the reason why we're talking about masks and injections is so the perpetrators get away with the crime. Because we're not talking about the crime. Why on earth in 1953 would Jonas Salk be ridiculed, ridiculed in 1953 when he came up with the polio vaccine he was ridiculed for not filing a patent on it. When asked why he didn't file a patent on it, he said, that would be as ludicrous as filing a patent on the sun. That became the subject of a book, Patenting the Sun. And that was when the life insurance companies got an idea. The idea they got was, I bet we could do this vaccine thing into an actuarial control of human life. I bet we could actually schedule when people live and when they die. And I bet that would be really good for us. That was 1953. 
Just let that settle in for a minute. And then 1980 came along. It wasn't really 1980. It was signed into law in 1980, but the real congressional hearings were in 1979. And what I love about the Bayh-Dole Act is nobody ever reads the hearings that gave rise to the Bayh-Dole Act. You've been told that the Bayh-Dole Act was this wonderful breakthrough that actually stimulated the great knowledge economy of the United States. Because for the first time, we were going to let the recipients of federal grants gain commercial access to the benefits of their research, the greatest innovation of all time, to make sure that science would finally contribute to the economy and we could build a knowledge economy. And so the bullshit cover story was, let's let people who get federal grants keep the rights to their inventions. If you want to know the death of free inquiry in science, and I mean the death like nails in the coffin, coffin on the train, train over the distance, corpse rotting in the casket, showing up and being buried under a wooden cross in the middle of the desert, the death of science happened with the signature of the Bayh-Dole Act. Because the minute we decided that publicly funded research was the provenance of the lottery winnings of those who actually would play by the rules of the game, and what's the rules of the game? Send in your grant application, have it peer-reviewed. Most of you don't even know that happens. Before you can even ask a question, a committee decides whether you can ask the question. Oh, how bullshit is that? You have a team of experts who have never thought of a thing because you thought of the thing. You have a team of experts decide whether the question you're asking is a legitimate question. Oh, that's a great idea because clearly the experts in the room would be perfect to understand the thing that they have no idea what the thing is. That makes absolutely logical sense. So let them be the arbiter of who gets the money. Oh, and then it goes through an institution which has a thing called the Office of Sponsored Programs. Anybody familiar with the Office of Sponsored Programs? Well, the Office of Sponsored Programs is what's the most inefficient NGO ever built in the history of humanity. It's a basic money laundering scheme where public institutions in every one of the states and most participating countries around the world charge an overhead of anywhere from 30 to 70% of a grant so that they scrape the money and the researcher is left with the pittance of the whatever's left over to hire the graduate students, to get the lab equipment, to do the study, to do everything else, at which point in time, the results of the research get sent back to, are you ready for this? A committee who also still has no freaking clue. They get to review whether not your study was done correctly. They get to review whether your study fits their business plan of the way education must advance. The Bayh-Dole Act is the death of free inquiry. The Bayh-Dole Act is the hijacking of the public coffers. And I find it fascinating that nobody talks about this, but we invented a very interesting invention the year after the Bayh-Dole Act got signed into law. 
I love how that happens. I love how we get the legal framework right, and then we create the thing for which the legal framework was relevant. I, I love that. I love that we actually anticipate where the ball is going. We're total Wayne Gretzky hockey puck here. We're going to where the puck will be, not where the puck is. And not surprisingly, the Bayh-Dole Act didn't have the ink dry on it before somebody came up with an interesting marketing program. What if you could create a virus and brand it with another name? What if, what if we could come up with this branding program? And the branding program goes something like this. We're going to say there's a virus. Then we're going to say there's a disease, but there's not really a disease. It's a series of symptoms, but it's not really a disease. But we're going to call the series of symptoms a disease. Sound familiar, anybody? Um, and, and this branding program is going to be great because when people hear that somebody has the virus, then they'll think that it's the disease. And if they hear that there's somebody with a disease, they'll know that they have the virus. And they'll be so confused that they can come up with numbers with how many people were infected and how many people died and, and blah, 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 blah. Does any of this feel like we are in a freaking loop from exactly a plan that was put in place in 1981 when we invented, listen, invented HIV and AIDS. We invented it. It did not turn out in the human population in 1981. We got the merchandising ready. We changed the laws to make sure that federal researchers could keep the economic gain for it. And then mysteriously, nature decided to have somebody have sex with a monkey or whatever the story is that you were told and by the way, that was a story you were told. Okay? Does that sound like a wet market in Wuhan? It sounds to me like a wet market in Wuhan. Really? That is the same thing as a wet market in Wuhan. Okay? We made up HIV and AIDS after we built the infrastructure to commercialize it. Does that sound like it was premeditated. And it turns out we did it laughing at Jonas Salk because he was too dumb to know that he should have commercialized the polio vaccine. And all of the vaccine manufacturers fell on their knees going, but we're poor, we're poor, we're poor because we're making this unpatented compound. We need to have patented things that allow us to actually charge for the treatment of a thing. And it turns out that the windfall 1981 was the invention of HIV AIDS. You know who some of the very first funding sources for that research were? Life insurance companies. You know what? I get tired of stories like this just because I'm so sick of knowing, and I've been doing this now, this business, this business of following the rats into the sewer to find out where the money's leaking. I've been following this trail much longer than any of you know. I started doing this in the 1980s in the jungles of Nicaragua and Costa Rica when we found out that cocaine and guns were mysteriously not so that we had Nancy Reagan's war on drugs, but so that we could actually bribe Iraq into keeping an Iran war going. That deal, the Iran-Contra scandal. That's where I cut my teeth. Turns out you make a lot of friends doing that. You make a lot more friends doing what I'm doing right now. And I dare them to censor this. 
I dare any of them to censor it because I have their home addresses. <laughs> censor me. Try it. See how it works out. Ladies and gentlemen, we are actually living through the execution of an Ill illiquidity event for life insurance companies. That's what this is. We have a thing called wrongful life in an actuarial model. That's when you live too long. Do you hear what I said? When you live too long. You now can buy insurance for living longer than your life insurance. Did you know that? You can actually buy a life insurance policy to insure you for outliving your life insurance policy because if you haven't already been raped and pillaged enough, we might as well just add insult to injury and have you insure yourself against the insurance not being there when you actually expect the insurance to be. And we have a collision risk. There's a thing called a clash risk in insurance. And we have a clash risk problem in 2030. Turns out that life insurers who have annuities that they owe you because you bought policies that said that they had to deliver money to you at the end of an annuity, turns out they haven't put enough money in that annuity to actually pay the obligation. Don't think for one minute that what Andrew Cuomo did in New York wasn't paid for by making sure that we targeted places that in fact had people who were at a point in their life insurance cycle that they were going to start costing insurance companies more than the insurance companies could pay. Don't think that that was some sort of innocent little Andrew Cuomo mistake when the New York State life insurance regulators are starting to breathe down the neck of life insurers going, you've got a problem because you don't have enough money to meet your obligation. Now, if you don't have enough money to meet your obligation and your obligation is to pay out in death what somebody is owed, what might you consider? What might you consider? Why don't we have a pandemic? Why don't we have a pandemic? This is not some sort of accident of science. This is premeditated murder. That's what it is. Let's be really clear on what it is. It's premeditated murder. And the industry that has propped up a lie for the last 140 years is still not even mentioned. With all the woke people that are woke up, not one of them is actually looking where the actual fire is coming from and we're looking at the smoke that is propped up and going, look, there's smoke, look, there's smoke. And if you don't believe every word that I just said, look at President Trump's first economic stimulus plan in the spring of 2020. And look at the fine print of the Jobs Act that was passed to support the economics of this great country. Payroll protection. Any of you heard that? You know what number that was in terms of funding priorities in that act? That was number five for the Payroll Protection Act. Payroll protection was priority number five. Do you know what Payroll Protection Act priority number one was? 
that employers should be able to maintain payment of life insurance premiums without interruption. That was our government defending our payroll. And the number one priority in the act was make sure that the life insurance premiums get maintained. People, I can't make this clear. It's been right in front of our face since a photograph taken in 1904. And we, the people, have not even begun to come out of the coma. Don't tell me about being awoken. Come on. I told you you weren't expecting this from me. But that's because I've got one shot at living. And if I can infect half of you in this room or a quarter of you in this room to have the conversation that for 140 years no one has been having, which is we the people have funded an industry which is now intent on killing we the people. If somebody in this room actually goes, well, hell, that doesn't seem like a good idea. (laughs) Then I have achieved my mission. Because my mission is to tell you that in 1998, when they came to me with the deal, I want to show you a little secret. The little secret I'm going to show you is the alchemy of evil. The alchemy of evil. And I'm going to tell you the reason why I'm going to teach you how evil works. Because we, as people of faith, have made a fundamental mistake. We haven't studied evil. We haven't studied it. And that is on us. We have adopted this bullshit story that says it's got to be peaches and cream and unicorn farts and whatever else, right? No. We have to study this thing. Because if we want to actually enter into the fight for not just humanity, but for a much larger battle, we need to understand how that battle actually works. And we are pathetic. We have not even begun to pick up sticks to start fencing. We're far, far from blades. We're far from blades. Let's talk about what it looks like, because you know the rest. 1984, I told you I'm going to throw this away. 1984, Fauci comes along, starts his $191 billion spending spree. You heard it, $191 billion spending spree to industrialize vaccination. And I want to read you something, because you can't make this shit up. This is better read than even me doing a bad quote of it. And So I'm not going to do a bad quote of it. I'm going to read it because if you're going to give the horse credit, you might as well read it straight from their mouth, don't you think? I just want you to hear this sentence and just see where it lands for you. And um, by the way, for those of you who who go online and look up Fauci dossier, which is where I'm going to read this from, uh, don't buy it on Amazon. That is not me. Somebody illegally uploaded that. That thing was released so that everybody could have it for free. The HTTP, whatever it is, PDF, that you get the whole thing for, for free, 
is not $35, and if you're buying it on Amazon, you're doing two things that are wrong. Number one is you're paying a, th a thief for stealing it from me, and number two, you're actually supporting Amazon, so don't buy it from there. Get it for free. But here we go. I want you to hear this in their words, because their words are so much inter more interesting than mine. Ready for this? Page eight. I feel like I'm in church now, reading from the gospel of Dave Fauci. <laughs> Peter Daszak, Ego Health Alliance. Quote, to sustain the funding base beyond the crisis, we need to increase public understanding of the need for medical countermeasures such as a pan-coronavirus vaccine. A key driver is the media, and the economics follow the hype. We need to use that hype to our advantage to get to the real issue. Investors will respond at the end of the process if they see profit. That was written in 2016. Did you hear me? Pan-coronavirus vaccine. We need the media to create the hype. And then we need to use the hype for our advantage, and then investors will follow the hype. How lonely do you think it is to be the prophet who's been saying this for every single year since 1999? How grateful am I that I'm standing in front of this audience right now feeling like for the first time I may not be speaking to the pile of bones, but maybe to an army that's willing to take this on. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. This is where it gets fun. And I'm trying to advance my slides here, so if anybody can help with that advance, let's figure out how does it work. Well, it works really simple. Every single time humans decide to take the step to the dark side, they always follow the same recipe. And always means always, and there is no time in history where this has not happened. Pay attention. Pay attention. This is the recipe for how evil manifests on this planet. It always starts with nature. We weaponize something about nature. Always. We always tell something about nature. We tell a story to denigrate nature. We say that nature is inferior. We say we're lords over. We're dominion over. We're this, that, and the other thing. We always put ourselves above nature. That's always the first step. By the way, I'm going to show you this a couple different examples. So just stay with me on this. The second thing is we always find a way to appeal to image. In old language, we called it idolatry. In new language, we call it image. We, we want to make sure that we appeal to, if you're not with us, if you're not part of the club, if you're not part of the team, if you're not, if you're not one of us, then, you know, you're kind of not with it. Okay? So we always see nature go from a natural phenomenon to something that actually shows up where we actually create dissension between people. The ins and the outs, the pros and the cons, the antis and the pros, the whatever you want to call it. And we always do that. That's always the second step. 
And then the third step is we always turn identity into identification. Identity into identification. Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you this? Are you that? Are you something else? Hold on a minute. How about, are you human? Are you created in the image and likeness of the divine? What, how about that? No, no, we're not good with that. We need to know whether you were educated or not, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're this, whether you're that. We manufacture a distinction to make identification take the place of identity. And once those three things are in the soup, the next things happen. We always seek to mutate nature. We always try to bend it to our will. We try to make sure it fits our model. We tell it the rules of the game. We don't listen to it. We tell it. We say, this is how nature works, rather than going, nature. What a beautiful, wonderful tapestry of mystery and wonder and awe and reverence. We don't do that. We focus on bending it to our will. And then we desecrate it. We take that which is holy and we desecrate it. Nature never was meant to be desecrated. Our community was never meant to be desecrated. Our identity was never meant to be desecrated. We were never meant to mutate and bend to our will that which is around us. We were invited to be stewards, not pirates. Stewards, not pirates. And then we always crescendo with subjugation. Somebody has to be at the bottom of the stack, and somebody defining the stack has to be at the top. We always have to end in a hierarchy. Now, I say a big thing when I say this always is how nature or evil works. That's, how, that's a big thing. So let me show you two stories. A story, if you will, separated by close to 2,000 years. And let's see if the model that I just showed you holds up. Anybody familiar with the stained glass window image on the left? Jesus tempted in the wilderness. Satan used the three alchemical steps. It's the first thing he did. He actually realized that if you're hanging out in the desert praying for 40 days, you probably... Got a little bit of a tickle in your tummy. So first thing you did is go, what's abundant? Well, turns out, if you've ever been in Palestine, you've been to the hills around Galilee and Judea, you see that there's a lot of stones, so not a lot of creativity. How about you take the stones and turn them into bread? What's that? That's the first alchemy of evil. Turn stones and mutate them. That's an alchemy of evil. Take a thing and turn it into a thing. Not use it, not steward it, turn it into a thing. That's the first temptation. That didn't work, right? Man should not live by bread alone. We move on to Axis 2. I'm going to go and I'm going to take you to the temple. Why would, why would the devil take Jesus to the temple? Well, it turns out that kind of that's the place where identity and community are formed. So the reason why you'd go there 
is you'd go there to say, hey, this is kind of fulcrum of your universe right here. This is kind of that place where divine and and human kind of interact. So that's kind of where we're going to take you. But what I'm really going to do when I'm going to take you there, I'm going to ask you to throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and rely on technology to save you. Ooh, what did I just say? I just said what the devil actually said. That's what the devil actually said. Rely on technology to save you. The devil didn't see angels as some sort of, you know, beneficent, what is angelos, the the conveyor of the will and the spirit of God. He didn't see it that way. He saw it as the sky hooks that could be dropped down and pick you up before you land on the ground. He actually desecrated nature. He desecrated the divine and he said, oh, that's cool. Turn angels into technologies, they'll save you. And Jesus said, you don't got me there either, pal. And then he took the dumbest step next. Bow down to me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Identify as not you anymore. It's an innocent thing. Just a little mRNA strand, that's all it is. That's all it is. You'll basically be you still, basically. No, you won't. You will have the aborted tissue of a 1960s abortion from Denmark. You guys don't know that, most of you don't. When Judy talks about those cell lines, the HEK and the Vera lines and all those kind of things, most of you don't know. That if you actually read the stories, the stories on the people who harvested those cell lines, they are chilling. Like seriously, if you read those stories, your blood would freeze into icicles. The level of horror that went into the collection of the lives of the kidney and eye cells that are used in vaccine production would chill any human being. So much so that one of the cell lines When asked about the provenance of the cell line, the researcher said, I think I lost the paperwork on the parents. How conscious is that? Sound like informed consent? Sound like you actually harvested any of these things? And by the way, that's what's swimming around in pretty much anybody that's gotten a vaccine in the last, what, 20 years? Now. And that's not the COVID vaccine. That's all of them. Okay? Bow to me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Let's see how it works out when Anthony Fauci's the devil. (laughs) Metaphorically. Hey, uh, for the camera, let's see how it works if Anthony Fauci is the devil. Well, it turns out the same game. I'm going to take a virus, and I'm going to actually turn it into a mechanism of fear and control. I'm going to alchemically use a virus that has never been associated with fear. Never. We've known about coronavirus. We've described coronavirus. We've done all kinds of things. Never been associated with fear. And in 1999, I'm going to start weaponizing it so that it actually becomes terrifying. Remember, we invented SARS. I told you that last night. We invented SARS. That came after three years of R&D 
which specifically stated that we were increasing the virulence of the spike protein. And you've heard about the spike protein till the cows come home today, and it turns out we were the ones that made coronavirus into SARS. We were the ones that built the bioweapon. That was the first trick. The second trick was population control. We want to actually control the population, and I want the double meaning of that to be exactly what I put on the slide. We wanted to control a population, and we wanted to have population control. And by the way, how convenient to come up with an RNA technology that might, might, we don't know, might sterilize you, might make it impossible for you to have children, might make people decide not to have kids because they actually don't want to procreate, because they don't want kids to come into this world. Anybody see a business plan happening here? Okay. So what do we do? We mask, we distance, we isolate. We use the technology of separation. We use a technology and say, trust them. Trust them. Do you realize that not a single one of the things we were told to trust, mask, distance, home isolate, not a single one of the things that we were told to do has a single piece of medical evidence supporting that recommendation. And it's worse than that. As I said last night, the C.R. McIntyre study very clearly showed that face mask wearing increases influenza illness, and that was a study that was published in everything leading to the April 2020 Journal of the American Medical Association official statement that says a healthy population should not ever wear a mask. That's what the Journal of the American Medical Association said. Take that, fact checkers, because it was them that said it, not me. I'm quoting. And then, take my gene therapy, lose your identity, and I'll give you a vaccine passport. You get the world. People, the devil as Anthony Fauci and the devil as 2,000-year-ago stained glass window is not even playing a different game. It is the same game. Now, let's land it in my life. 1998. You know what? I was actually not in a great situation. The marriage that I was in was a very challenging one. My wife was on a very interesting journey. It was a very difficult journey. She had an enormous amount of depression, had enormous amounts of other challenges. I thought being around me must be magical because who couldn't? I'm me. Of course it would be magical. And I thought somehow mysteriously I would be so magical that somehow I would break through that depression. In 1998, guess what I knew? I'm not that magical and depression is a tough thing to deal with. I was at a point in my life where I'd been in the wilderness for a very, very long time. When I was approached by the individuals who actually said, how about the kingdoms of the world, they started with a nature thing. Looking at me, you know, the handsome hunk that I am, Dave, you know. <laughs> what do you suppose they'd start with? No, they didn't start with hair. <laughs> nice, nice, I like it, I like where you're going. Thank you. Dr. Ely, for making sure that everybody got that point. <laughs> they started with the famine that I was in. We could actually arrange for you to have access to some pretty fine women. And by the way, some of them are sitting here at the table. You know the thing I love about evil and the thing I love about this map? Because I've known it forever. You know why I love this map? You can smell it a mile away. 
If you hear somebody pick on a thing you think that matters to you, you already know you're in the room of sulfur. And if the smell of sulfur starts growing, when they get a thing that is your wilderness, right? You don't have to keep going. That's okay, they did. And the way this one went was, we could start with your famine. How about we actually have access to some women that, you know, would make you not have to be so lonely and miserable and all that kind of good stuff. And I kind of did the thou shalt not eat bread alone. That was pretty easy. I was raised Mennonite. You don't have indiscretions. You don't have those things. So for me, that one was, that was a slap shot, splash shot, right? That was a, you can't even get me to swing at that one because I'm not that dumb. So we moved to option two. Option two was, what's my temple? Well, it turns out that had built some very interesting technologies, really interesting technologies, and they told me what could be done with my technologies. If we had access to what you have in your brain and what you've put into computers, we could help you do. Sound familiar? Take you to my temple and then ask me to throw myself off and be dependent on your financing, your money, your reputation, your market access, your everything else. And I smelled the sulfur getting hotter and I was like, nah, pass on that one. And then the comedy of all. Just become one of us and we can actually give you the kingdoms of the world. And they actually used that terminology. And by the way, vaccine passport is no different from this, people. No different. That's what that is. You can't smell it. You can't smell the sulfur every time that's said. You got a smelling problem. You might have COVID. You might need to check into it. <laughs> See, I had to make a joke on that, right? After we heard about all the symptoms. I mean, if you're not smelling sulfur, you're not feeling the heat, not feeling that little eat, that's a pitchfork. If you're not feeling that. <laughs> and so they told me all of the influence that they could have, I could have and all the things I could have. And I, I actually laughed at this one. Because for those of you who don't know, by that time I had already been to probably close to 100 countries. And they were telling me about the 30 or 40 places that they had really high-level access and governments that they controlled. And, and when they got done with their list of all the cool places I could go, I laughed. I think it was in 2006 that the CIA and the State Department asked for my passport because I had stamps in my passport that weren't in any other U.S. passport. And to forger fake passports, they needed copies of stamps from countries that they had never had anybody else get into. So they photographed my passport. I'm the reference guy for stamps in passports. So you're telling me, sitting in an upstairs restaurant in a hotel in New York, that you're going to give me the world? When my passport is the reference for the agency to forge your passports? Are you shitting me? And I said something that they weren't prepared to hear. I said no. They said, no one says no to us. I said, well, then you've had your first. 
No. And then I'm going to tell you the punchline, and this is the part that I love the most. And I love to tell audiences, big audiences, this punchline. One of them said, well, who are you working for? <laughs> the assumption being that I already had a better deal. And guess what? I said, I said, you wouldn't know him if I told you. Now, that's how evil works. And by the way, I can take you through every single hijack of humanity, and every one of them has those three alchemical ordinates. Nature, down to that hierarchy of manipulation mutation, it always has some form of the, the place where we define who we are and what we are, and we always hijack it into a technology, and we always, always, always have a knowledge story, the stories we tell, the identities we take on, and we always say we're going to trade that for a benefit. Evil will always do that. And you can be ninjas detecting this. Ninjas. When you actually see this pattern emerge, and by the way, take a napkin out at home, take a notepad out at home and just go, hey, that bald guy had this thing. And it had like six little things. And let me see if I can map out what's happening in that sixth thing. And if it is, guess what? You got the fingerprint on who's behind it for 2,000 years and counting. Guess what? We, the people, need to say, let there be enlightenment. Light. Because it turns out light can run on exactly the same architecture. That is the reason why the name Lucifer was given to the darkness, because it turns out that the only person who needs to light something is somebody that doesn't have it. You hear what I just said? The only person who needs light is a person without it. So what is light? Well, turns out that we actually have a vibrant nature. Nature's vibrant. It's verdant. It's wonderful. It's productive. It's magical. It's healing. The great poet Sadi said, I will gladly reach my hand into the viper's den because I know next to the viper's den the Almighty has placed the antidote. What a beautiful poem. That was known 3,000 years ago in Persia. Why don't we know that today? Why don't we know that today? That, that was common knowledge. I, I can go through my medical textbooks of all of the Persians that I have in my, in my library at home, and they all knew this. <laughs> when you have a problem, look next to the problem. Because it turns out next to the problem was the solution to the problem. That's where you look. You look because it turns out that it wasn't a problem, it was a perspective. And when we have the perspective wrong, we'll actually get the outcome wrong. But if we actually have the perspective right and we see the thing, then we'll see next to the thing, the Almighty has already placed the antidote, the benefit, the side effect, the whatever it is. And it turns out that is an always statement. Nature is our ally. Open the aperture of observation. And never look at where the funding is flowing because the funding is always moving down a pathway that has some other master. Some other master. Community. How terrible has this day been? How about last night? 
How crappy has it been to meet strangers in an open environment like this? Where we don't have somebody curating every hug and every experience. Where we don't have hall monitors with six-foot rods that are making sure that they're ensuring distance. How crappy has that been? That's been dreadful. I don't ever want to come back. I don't ever want to come back to some miserable little town in Yuba City, California, where I... I don't even know if I'm in Live Oak or Yuba City because there's a stupid road that I don't know which side I'm on. And build curiosity. Build curiosity, not consensus. Curiosity, not consensus. Do not ask me for an answer to a thing. Now, the fact that you can ask me pretty much any question, I'm seemingly some sort of walking Wikipedia without the funding, and therefore with a little more objectivity, <laughs> you know, that's cool, but don't listen to what I'm saying. Be curious about what I'm saying. Go up and ask the questions that aren't being asked. Go back and have the conversations that aren't being had. Be curious. Do not build consensus. And consensus includes not jumping on the bandwagon for topics that are the cool topics of the enlightened people. Because if you're on a cool topic only of enlightened people, you're as consensus and boring as the boring consensus people on the other side. There's no benefit from having all of us agree that masks suck because the story should be about life insurers who are about ready to kill people. That's the story we should be talking about. Just saying. <laughs> Tell the stories of character, not the idolatry of heroes. Every person who you've seen on this stage today, let me say something abundantly clear. Every person you've seen on this stage today did not follow Joseph Campbell's story of myth. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't go on the hero's journey. Right? This crazy story that we say is always the, the hero's journey where you, where you find yourself on this journey where you leave your community to go on a quest and then you go into the darkness and you battle the seven-headed hydras of hell and then, then a mythical you know, Gandalf-type figure comes along with a magic ring or a, a fishing line or a, 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 a spider bite that gets you out or whatever. You know what? All of us have gone on a prophet's journey, not a hero's journey. And you know what? I'm sick and tired of Christians and people of faith actually using the hero's journey story because the hero's journey story is actually about the idolatry of identity. It is not about the stewards of community. I did not become a hero when I started shooting Butterflies of the Week. Or when I started doing, you know, the We the People Network or anything else. That's not, that's not a hero thing. And standing here isn't a hero thing. I didn't get a magic ring somewhere. There's no Gandalf that showed up and said, that your moment of darkness, I've given you this magical power to go. Nope. Guess what? I still put my pants on one leg at a time. I don't levitate into my pants. I don't levitate into my boots. I still do everything the way we all do it. And I am sick and tired of any of us being celebrated for what we are not. We are not heroes. Heroes seek idolatry. Stewards seek effectiveness. And they live for one thing and one thing alone. 
the master's voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Joseph Campbell's power of myth will never get close to the nectar, the ambrosia, the majesty, the poetry of Solomon that says that all of this is worth it for the smile of the master that says, Judy, well done. Good and faithful servant. Henry, well done, good and faithful servant. The majesty that says, Sherry, well done. Carrie, well done. Listen, people. Listen. Don't put us on a pedestal that we are not on. We're not. Right, I can guarantee you that across every person who's spoken in January, every person who's spoken here today, and the people who will come after us, do not make a graven image of a prophet. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because we, in fact, are merely doing what we were called to do. That's it. I entrusted you with much, even more is expected. Live every day of your life with that. If you don't have that on your mirror, if you don't have that as your motivational vision board, if you don't have that on your Pinterest tattoo wish list, you got it wrong. You got to make sure that you've been entrusted with much and even more is expected. Use your energy, and this is so important, for magnetism, the power of harnessing the universe, rather than the illusion of polarity, the fors and against. Be an attractor of good and a repeller of evil. But judgment isn't yours. Stay away from polarity. And if it polarizes, it doesn't belong in your life. And finally, if I hear among any person the phrase uttered in my presence, the one phrase you can utter in my presence where I absolutely lose my mind, and I will let you know that it's lost. (laughs) Don't ever say, but you're only human. Do not denigrate what has been created. Do not ever, 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 ever say you're only human. Because until you understand that you were entrusted with this majesty, you do not deserve it. From now until the end of time, expunge that from your vocabulary because you are not only human. You are fearfully, wonderfully, and perfectly human with all of the crazy, nutty, odd, nuancy imperfections that make you abundantly, perfectly you. We, the people have been entrusted with much. And now you, the people, together with me, the people, 
are accountable for what we've heard here today. We have only begun this fight. I'm going to end with one story. Joseph is a story we don't tell right. Because it turns out Joseph's hard years were not the seven years of famine. The hard years were the seven years of plenty. We never tell the story right. You imagine how hard it is to talk to somebody when everything's perfectly fine? Do you realize that in 2013, when I actually tried to wake the whole world up to this pandemic that was coming, do you know how absolutely terrifyingly alone it was to know that not a single audience anywhere cared? That's the hard years. And for seven years, I organized all this shit. I had the dirt on everybody. I followed all the money. I did all the research. How does Dave produce so much research? I don't know. For seven years, I wasn't stopping night or day, looking at absolutely every patent that gets issued, every grant that goes out, every funding source of every one of these things. I had been doing that for this entire time. And what I'm going to tell you is that there's a lot of Josephs in this room who are working alone and not being appreciated for the fat years. Because the fat years are when everybody thinks you're an idiot. They're complacent. They're comfortable. They're going to Starbucks. They're having their outings. They're doing all those things. And why are you such a nervous Nelly talking about all these problems that might... Hey, hold on a minute. Because I know that seven skinny years are coming. You know, how much of a bummer was it, right, if you're Noah at year 38? Come on. How much of a bummer was that? You'd start seeing things in your mind that look like giraffe that weren't there. Just because you wanted to make up something that goes, God help me, I'm pretty sure I got the dimensions right. I don't even know what an elephant looks like, so I don't know how much poop they have, because we have poop experts in the room now, right? I don't know that. <laughs> so I don't know if I got the poop shoot right or not. I don't even know what an elephant is, so what is it? And I'll tell you what. Noah's happiest day was not the day he got out of the ark on the top of the mountain. His happiest day was the first day he looked on the horizon and saw giraffes. <laughs> and he was like, damn. And I feel like sometimes I feel a little bit like Joseph at the end of the seven fat years, a little bit like Noah at about 39 years and about 11 months. For me, COVID was a giraffe. Because it's the first time I've had an audience of any size listen to my story of life insurance. That, my friends, that, my friends, is what I have entrusted to you. And now I want us to realize that right now we must, we must understand that we have seven years of famine coming. Listen carefully. 
We have seven years of famine coming. We have not begun to experience where this thing is going. And do not despair, because here's the prophet in me. We will prevail, but we may not have a latte all the way through it. And stop complaining about lattes. Right? You may not get on a plane and fly to Tahiti, and that's okay. Because we have seven years of famine, and we're at year one. We got six years to go, and if you read the account, you'll realize that things get a little dodgy in the years four, five, and six. But I can guarantee you that I'm going to end with the promise that I made when I incarnated on this planet, and I'm going to keep this promise until I get hauled off. Ready for this? I was sent ahead to prepare for this moment. I know why I'm here, and I know literally why I'm standing in Yuba City in May of 2021, because we, the people, will be the remnant. Never forget that. Never forget that. Thank you very much.